Ahoy Mets fans! Welcome back to Amazing Avenue in Conversation. My name is Brian Salvatore, and myself and Chris McShane are joined on this episode by former Met player Josh Satin. Josh played for the Mets from 2011 to 2014, is a sometimes guest on SNY, and is an Amazing Avenue favorite. We're so thrilled he was on the show, and so let's not waste any more time. Here it is. Joining us on the podcast today is Josh Satin, a former Major League Baseball player, but for our purposes, a former New York Met. He was a, uh, a, a special favorite of Amazing Avenue when he was playing for the Mets, and we're going to talk about that a little bit. But Josh, thank you for being here. For those folks that maybe don't um, don't have as good of a memory of, of dates and things like that, when were you playing for the Mets? So I got drafted in 2008. Um, I was with the organization until the end of 2014 and up with the big league team throughout 2011 to 2014 in different spurts. Now, um, we were talking before we recorded for a second about the draft because the draft is coming up next week. Can you just tell us a little bit about what your draft experience was like? You know, what was, uh, what was it like to be drafted by a big league club? Um, it was wild. I mean, um, I had, I don't know if many of you guys or even many Mets fans know like the history of me, but, um, I actually was a five-year college player, um, for various reasons, most of it was injury. But, um, so going into my fourth year, um, I actually preseason was projected to get drafted really high. I came out of the Cape Cod league and I hit a home run in the Cape Cod league all-star game in the summer before my junior, my red shirt junior season. Um, and I had a horrendous season, um, come the season, I got hurt, broke my wrist, missed a bunch of time, came back, was awful. And I still expected to get drafted and I actually didn't get drafted. Um, so I came back for a fifth year. And so when it was time to get drafted that year, um, I had literally no expectations. I, I, I mean, I thought I should get drafted. I, I had a really good season, but I was also 22, um and had not gotten drafted the year before so when my name was called um it was a really good feeling um what team did you grow up rooting for when you started playing baseball i was a dodger fan um i was a dodger fan i uh, i grew up in la still live here now um my dad was a big sports fan um so we went to a ton of lakers and dodger games so i was always a big la sports fan and um when you were drafted by the Mets, did you um, what What was your overall impression? Like, did, did you? I don't want to say did you care because of course you cared, but sort of what, what was your impression about the team when you got drafted by them? What What were your sort of uh, you know overall sentiments about the Mets as an organization before you got there? Yeah, well, at first, yeah, I mean, at first I was just thrilled to get drafted, and then you like take a you know you really think about it and you, you actually when you get drafted you don't realize how far away from the major leagues you are um but so then saying oh my god i got drafted by the new york mets i'm going to live in new york this is going to be amazing like new york you know i've been there maybe once or twice in my life um but new york is one of those cities in the world that you know everything happens you're just you love being there um and so when that sank in it was like oh damn i'm going to be in new york uh living the life you know etc um I didn't know much about the team um, other than, you know, guys like me when I was a corner infielder, um, you know, David Wright was, you know, 25 at the time. Um, he was an all-star, you know, he was the guy that you looked up to. So that was really, uh, you know, my only real knowledge of the organization at the time was that, you know, David was there um, and he was someone I wanted to emulate. Yeah, that's, um, is it daunting to have a player who is in the same general position that you're in be ahead of you in the organization like that? Like, you know, did you ever feel like, oh man, if I was drafted by a team that didn't have an all-star third baseman, my path to the majors might be a little bit more clear. I think when you first get drafted, like that's kind of the thought, but then when you get into the organization, you realize I'm seven steps away from even like being in the conversation of, you know, maybe competing against a guy like that. So really that, that didn't save me um, at all. Um, really you kind of look at him as like, okay, um, he's in the organization. He's doing everything you want to do. Just be like him really. Um, and it's really more looking at like what else they have in the organization. Um, 
you know, I, I'm, I was always like a very analytical guy. So like, you know, you get drafted and you're like, all right, I play second and third base, first base, like who do they got? Who do they got in A ball? Who do they got in double A? Um, you kind of try to size it up and see, you know, where do I fit in? How can I elevate through the system? Um, because if you play well enough and you're able to do well enough, they'll figure out a place for you to play. And, and just because David's there or whoever was there, it, it doesn't, re- it doesn't really matter in the long term because it's all about yourself. So, yeah, it's, uh, Josh, it's Chris. I was just curious, you know, coming to New York, uh, I'm curious what that's like from a player's perspective, because obviously the Cyclones aren't the first assignment for everybody who comes up through the org, but Mm -hmm. a lot of college players end up starting there, uh, as you did. So, you know, it's, uh, I'm on the other polar extreme end of New York City from Coney Island, but Mm -hmm. it's, it's sort of a unique spot and I'm you know what's that like with a bunch of guys who most of them are probably living in New York City for the first time uh you know what's that experience as a minor leaguer in Coney Island like yeah um I I don't think there's any place you can play in the minor league that can get you more excited to be a major leaguer than playing for the Brooklyn Cyclones and I don't say that lightly um the reason being is because you know, a lot of these guys that play in these major college programs, they have a ton of fans. And then you come to some of these little podunk towns um, and you get a thousand people at a game. It's like kind of monotonous every day, et cetera. But playing for the Cyclones is exciting. Um, you know, there's 10,000 people. You're living in New York City, the buzz around the city, you know, the, the big league teams on every TV, everywhere you go. Um, and it really invigorates you to want to be a major leaguer um, because you know, it's a small sense of what it's like, but you're getting a little taste of what being a New York Met is actually like. Uh, so for me, it was an amazing experience. Um, feels incredible. Um, and, you know, it's your first taste of pro ball, but it's a taste of what New York baseball is really like. The fans are insanely knowledgeable. Um, they're insanely enthusiastic and they treat you exactly how they treat the major league players. If you're playing well, they love you. If you stink, they hate you. Um, and they'll tell you about it. And, you know, for me, um, I think New York baseball in general, it's not for everyone, but it was definitely for me because I I, I love that. I love people telling you how they feel, people telling you how it really is. Um, and people praising you when you do well and when you're struggling, they'll tell you about it. And it's like, yeah, I know you're right. Um, there's nothing really else to say about that. So you get a real good taste of that right away in the Mets organization when you go out to Coney Island. So when, when you were playing in Coney Island, did, was there a lot of interaction with the big league club? Like, you know, on your off days, were you going to, to, to games, you know, to watch the Mets play, or were you still sort of cloistered in a way that you would be if you were in, you know, any other city in the world? Yeah, you're, you're not, I mean, we never went to games or anything. Um, You get the occasional player, um, coming down to talk to the team every once in a while or rehabbing with the team. Um, those are always really exciting just because you get, you know, to size yourself up with someone that's, that's made it. Um, and you get to listen. You know, we'd have – I can't remember. Uh, we had Ryan Church. I don't know if you guys remember him, but he came out and spoke Ryan to us. I'll never yeah. forget that. Okay. Uh, yeah. I forget who I'm talking to. Um, <laughs> yeah, so like – um, Ryan Church came out. I remember he played a couple games with us and, you know, talked to us. I remember Angel Pagan came out. I ended up playing with Angel Pagan, which was crazy, like three years, four years later. Um, and you really get, you know, you get more interaction with, with the big league team than you would playing in, you know, who knows where else, Kingsport, um, for example. Um, but you're not, you know, I wasn't going to games or anything. I was pretty focused on what we had, what I was trying to accomplish. Um but, you know, being in New York City, like, you know, you're watching TV every night, you're watching SNY, and you're seeing, you know, what's going on with the team. You really get more access to, like, what's going on around the organization rather than being in a far-off place. So, you know, as you climb through the ranks of the Mets minor league system, uh, you know, it's it, it wasn't that long from the time you were drafted until your major league debut, at least – I don't know if it feels that way uh, on the player side, but, you know, you look at it Mm -hmm. from the fan side and pretty steady progression getting up, uh, you know, getting that call. When you got the first call up to the majors, how did that go down? Yeah, I mean, 
it, it was, I remember like it was yesterday, but for me, like the climb was, it, it, it's like looking back, it was steady, but it was anything but steady. I, you know, the game's really interesting because there's a very small handful of guys that get drafted and you're like, that guy's definitely a major leaguer. I was not one of those guys. You know, you get drafted in, for example, like Ike Davis, he got drafted the same year as me. Like that guy was a major leaguer. Like from day one, he was going to be a major leaguer. For me, like I had to consistently perform in order to get moved up year after year um, and level after level. So, you know, getting that call was kind of a validation of all the work I put in. And, and, you know, for me, I had to hit every year um, or I would have been not necessarily just moved up. I would have been gone. Um, So for me, it was, you know, I'll never forget it. It was, I was in Buffalo um, and it was the day before September 1st. It was September 1st was, you know, rosters expand. And um, there was like, some inklings that I was going to get called up, but you never know. Um, and my manager was Tim Tuffle, who um, had been my manager pretty much every season um, on my ascend to the big leagues. Uh, he was my manager in A-ball in 2009, double A 2010, triple A 2011. Um, and he knew, like, for me, it was never easy. Um, so I'll, I'll never forget, Sandy was there. Um, and it, it, looking back, it was funny. I remember the day before, I was like, you know, Sandy's here. Like, I got to make sure I play well. So he calls me up, even though, like, in reality, like, he had already made that decision probably weeks before. Um, but, you know, I, I remember I got two hits the day before. I'm like, all right, maybe I'm coming now. When in reality, I could have got zero or five, and it wouldn't have mattered. But um, <laughs> I remember uh, Tuff called me into his office, and Sandy was in there. Um, and he told me the news. Uh, and it was a cool moment, man, because, like I said, Tuff, like, he knew, like, for me, it was never easy. I was never that guy that was just elevated because I was ultra talented, etc. Um, so uh, we we had a good moment together, and it was just one of those times where I was I, I'll never forget. It was just like I was really really excited, and then like I got back to my apartment in Buffalo, getting ready for the plane the next day, and I was I got like really nervous um, because like it's you don't know what to expect. I didn't really know. I knew some guys on the team that I'd come up with, but like, I didn't know anyone else. I didn't know like Jose Reyes or David or, you know, we had uh, like an all-star cast that year. Um, Even though, you know, the record probably didn't reflect that, but we had, you know, Johan Santana, we had guys that were like, these are big name guys that you grew up watching. Um, And also now I'm I'm on the same team as them. So uh, it was, you know, stepping on in the clubhouse that first day, you just like don't even know what to think. Um, stepping in, I remember the first game, um, I didn't start, uh, and I was on deck, uh, and there was two outs, and we were down by like a million. And uh, uh, Terry told me I was going into pinch hit, and Jose Reyes was up, and it was like a 3 0 count. And I'm like, I'm like shaking in the on deck circle, and I'm like, all right, here we go. Um, you know, I'm like ready to go. He took a strike. And then he popped up to like short stop. And so I, I, I didn't get end up hitting that day, but I remember like, I was like shaking in the on deck circle because like, you're just looking around you're like, man, like this is what I've been dreaming about my whole life. And it's finally here. I, you know, I want to make sure I show everyone I belong. Um, so that, that day was kind of a whirlwind. I mean, I, I'll never forget it. It was, my parents flew out from LA. Like it was, it was a big deal. It was a great day. Uh, you know, you, you talk about, the nerves of that initial at bat. I think everybody listening to this absolutely understands that feeling. We've all had something in our lives that way. But how soon after that for you did it become, I don't want to say normal, because I don't know if it ever becomes normal, but you know, how soon after that did you feel comfortable as a big league ball player? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it does become normal after a while. Um, but I think it really it's going to sound crazy, but that whole first like year, 2011, like it never became really normal. Um, I remember I start, I relaxed a little bit. I got a big hit um, for us in St. Louis, uh, like two weeks in. Um, it really doesn't become normal until like you do something that like you feel like shows everyone that you belong. Um, so I got a big hit in St. Louis um against uh god i'm blanking on his name but he was a lefty for them for years um and uh i had a really good friend actually my roommate from college was a guy named alan craig um and 
he was the first baseman. You know, he was kind of the utility guy for the Cardinals then. Um, and I remember getting on first, and he was there. And, like, then it kind of felt a little normal. Like, all right, I got a hit. He's there. Like, I can chat with him. He's my friend, blah, blah, blah. Um, but re- realistically, I-, I didn't actually feel normal until 2013 um, when I started to hit. And I remember um, we were playing. I-, I was doing well, but we were playing in Atlanta. And I didn't start a game, that, uh, even though I'd been playing well. And I came in and pinch hit against Mike Miner in like the seventh inning. He was doing really well um, against us. Um, and I hit a double to basically win the game. Um, and after that, it was like, all right, like I'm here, I'm doing, I'm contributing. And like, now it's just like, okay, business as usual. Like, just like in the minor leagues, just do well, just play my game. Um, and I think that's the biggest key for young guys going to the major leagues is how do you figure out how to make it the same? It's not easy. Um, how do you figure out to make it the same as it always is playing against guys that you grew up watching on TV and playing in front of, you know, tens of thousands of people and many more on TV. It's not easy, but I think that's the key to success because like the reality is if you do well up and through the minor leagues, like there's no reason you shouldn't do well in the major leagues. It's just making it feel the same is really challenging. Yeah. You know, I, I think for all of us, we've gotten starstruck when you meet a player that you grew up watching but to play against them has mm-hmm. got to be something you know totally different who was the player that sort of made you the most starstruck when you first encountered them um i mean walking into the clubhouse and seeing like david jose reyes uh johan was pretty crazy but i remember one of my first at bats um in the major leagues we were uh it was 2011 and roy Halliday was pitching and uh uh like I got in, uh, Mike Pelfrey was pitching for us. I have a pretty good memory if you, if you guys can have to figure that out. Um, <laughs> and uh, he, uh, Mike did not have a good game. And like, it was like the second or third inning. And they're like, all right, Mike's out. Josh, you're pinch hitting. And I'm like, oh, shit, it's Roy Holiday. Okay. Um, and so getting in the box against him was like, kind of like, the, oh man, like this dude won a couple shots. He was like the best pitcher in the game at the time by a lot. Um, and so that was kind of a, a starstruck moment. Um, I remember also my first career hit. Um, it was actually in my first career at bat. Um, it was against Levon Hernandez. And, uh, you know, obviously he had a, like, a long, long career. He wasn't like phenom, but he was really good for a really long time. Um, and then I got a hit and got on first base. And just the guys that were, we was against the Nationals, um, the guys that were playing for them, you know, were all guys that I had not necessarily grown up watching, but, you know, knew who they were at the time. They were big stars. It was like Ryan Zimmerman, Ian Desmond, um, Adam LaRoche, like all these guys. Um, and every single guy, I'll never forget this. And I always tried to do this to eat. Not that I had like a really long career, but whenever I played first base and there was a young kid that got their first hit, I always tried to make them feel good about themselves because these guys, every single, I ended up going first to second to third and scoring. Like every single guy was like, Hey, congratulations. Like this is to you. You should feel great about this because no matter how good you are or how long you play or how big of a star you are, everyone had to get there the same way, going through the minor leagues, grinding through on buses, eating PB and J, you know, before a game and everyone knows how difficult it is. And so I think that's one really special thing about baseball is, is everyone feels connected with guys that made it um, because everyone had to do it the same way. Yeah, that's uh I think that's a, a nice thing that it can be easy to miss that sort of thing as a fan, even as, you know, the broadcast shows, especially a guy got his first hit, you know, you see him on first base uh, looking just absolutely thrilled. Um, but you don't always get all of those connections that happen on the field. And even if you're at the game in person, you you know, you, you can't look at everybody all the time. So it's definitely cool to hear that. Uh, I'm curious Something that gets talked about quite a bit on Mets broadcasts, uh, you know, over the last 10 years at least, um, but certainly with Sandy Alderson at the helm and now, you know, moving over to Brody Van Wagenen uh, and, and the changes that were made on the coaching staff. How much as an individual player does that organizational philosophy about hitting 
feel like it's a thing you're aware of and a thing that's affecting you or versus, you know, I'm doing what I want to do and, you know, working with this coach to tweak certain things, uh, you know, is it omnipresent yeah. or just kind of a thing that you hear once in a while? Um, it's a good question. I think with Sandy, um, and it's interesting because like, I, I don't know if my career would have gone the way it did in a positive way if Sandy wasn't at the helm. Um, because, you know, for whatever I was, like my game was a game that Sandy liked. Um, he liked getting on base. He liked taking pitches. You know, I was like kind of his, you know, if you watch read Moneyball or whatever, like he doesn't care about athleticism. He, he was a big, do you give professional at-bats? Are you making the pitcher work? Are you getting on base? How often are you getting on base? And I always did that really, really well. That was like pretty much my only strength, and not only, but my one strength in the game was that I got on base a lot. Um, so I, I think I kind of ended up playing into that more um, because I knew he liked it so much. Um, and I think it, it definitely, uh, you know, weighed on some guys as well. Um, and not necessarily a negative way, but just in, in, in their mind that, you know, this guy wants you to get on base. Um, and so I, I, it's, it's a fascinating concept. I, I mean, we can discuss it further if you guys want. I, I have a lot of, you know, ideal ideals on this. Um, and Please, it's ever changing it, too. Um, I, I was always like a, it's just, I'll use a guy that, that I played with that who, who's a good friend of mine, Daniel Murphy. Um, when we played together, um, he was a guy that would hit 300, but that, that was really it. Like he never got on base. He didn't hit homers. Um, and you know, it ne didn't necessarily cater towards Sandy's style of play. Um, and in my mind, like I was kind of the opposite of that. Um, you know, I was a high batting average guy too, but I was a high on base guy. So to me, it was like, Oh, this guy doesn't get on base. Like how valuable could he possibly be? Um, and I think there's definitely room for that in the game now. Um, but, but I also think the game and not necessarily Sandy, but just the game in general has kind of gone overboard in that. Um, because I think, you know, I watched some of the guys now and, and I'll use Daniel as an example. Um, and this too, like when you get to the playoff time, you know, it's not the guys that strike out and hit homers and walk that really affect the game. It's the guys that are consistently putting the bat on the ball against the top pitchers are the guys that are affecting the games. And I, I think that, you know, my, my philosophy on Daniel in particular has changed drastically over the last like four or five years, because if you watch in the playoffs, like he is the kind of guy that, you know, with the Mets, with the nationals, like he was a guy that everyone who played against him hated because he put great at bats and was always barreling the ball and making things happen. Um, so I think that style of player has actually kind of become undervalued um, a little bit. Um, and obviously it helped that he started to hit homers and et cetera, but, um, I think, you know, it, it, it's funny to say now, but like him and Justin Turner in the last like four or five years have probably been the two most dominant playoff players. Um, and the reason is because they're constantly putting the barrel on the ball against the best pitchers in the game. And it's not easy to do. Um, and the style of walking and hitting home runs and striking out when you're facing the best pitchers in the game, it's going to lean more towards striking out. Um, but these guys, they don't do that. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's an interesting, like, kind of debate back and forth. Um, and I think there's room for both players, but I think, you know, the high-contact player has become undervalued. You, know, you mentioned at the start of our chat that you always consider yourself a pretty analytical guy, and so it seems like mm -hmm. you're, you're the type of guy who would encourage a coach to come up to you and or, or someone from the front office and say, you know, here's what we're trying to do as a team, here's our philosophy, you know, uh, and you could you know, understand the, the reasoning for that. Did you find that when you were playing, were players more or less open to those sorts of things? Or were, was there still sort of the old attitude of, you know, I'm playing my game my way? You know, I know Chris asked that about the batting philosophy, but I'm talking sort of overall as a ball player. Did you find that your other players you played with, were they as open to being coached and instructed as you were? I think it depends on the guy and their – um, role on the team. Um, you know, you're not going to tell someone that's a seven year vet that's had a lot of success, you know, do this. And they're, you know, they're going to be like, well, why? Um, but you know, there's certain players that are constantly, um, willing to do that. Um, I think a lot of young guys 
are um, because, you know, I think they want to be in the big leagues. And if that's what they think they need to do to get there, um, I think they will. Um, one thing that I always respected about both Justin Turner and Daniel was that, you know, late in their careers, um, they totally changed their game. Um, and they, like Daniel, for example, uh, he uh, allowed Kevin Long to, to basically redo his swing um, going into a free agent year when he had been a good player. Um, and Justin uh, was not as good of a player at the time, but he totally redid his swing too um, because they saw where the game was leaning and they felt they needed to pivot. So guys like that definitely will. Um, young guys definitely will. I definitely w- was willing to. Um, I kind of tried to do exactly what they were trying to do towards the end of my career, and it kind of backfired on me a little bit. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's challenging for, you know, someone to tell – you know, a 10 year vet who's been successful his whole career, you know, um, this is the way we want to play as a team, you know, that, what, that they've been doing it for so long and been so successful. It, it's challenging. The, uh, the point on Murphy doing it just before free agency caught, caught my attention because, you know, we've seen how free agency has played out over the last couple of winters. Um, you know, who knows where that ends up when this CBA mm-hmm. expires and, and, and how that gets resolved, but there's still a couple more under this one. you know, could you see that kind of environment having an effect on a guy and, and guys, you know, this season, next season being a little more reluctant to do what Murphy did and, you know, change their swing and revamp because it's already a somewhat anxious situation given the way the market has been. Yeah, I mean, the the way the CBA is structured, in my opinion, um, and I'm obviously, like, far pro player. Like, I'm as much pro player as you can get. Um, but it's structured for players not to – I mean, let me re- rephrase that. You know, the way it's structured, GMs are becoming smarter. Just a fact. Like, when does a seven-year deal for a 31-year-old player ever work out? It doesn't. But if you go to college, get to the big leagues at 24 – um, and now you're a free agent at 31, you're kind of, that's just what you are. Uh, you're a 31 year old free agent. Um, so, you know, I think, I, I don't know if changing yourself before free agency is the real issue, but I think the issue is more how people, um, how the, how the system is structured because, you know, the prime of your career realistically is like 27 to 31, 32. And if you're not getting the free agency at 30, there's, you know, you're getting paid, not next to nothing, still a lot, but you're getting paid well below market for your prime years. And then all of a sudden, you know, you want to get paid what you think you're worth and GMs are too smart for that now. Um, I think the days of like paying like a Jason Bay, for example, when he was 32, 33 are gone. Um, They're not going to, they used to pay people for what they did in the past. And I don't think that's happening anymore. So I think the way that the whole CBA is structured I think, um, you know, making minimum for three years, they could hold people back, um, you know, in the big, hold people back in the minor leagues to get an extra year of control. It really works against ultimate pay of the player um, because, you know, you look at Pete Alonzo on the Mets right now, he's 24, 25, like he's going to be paying league minimum until he's 27, 28. And he's worth obviously way more. He has 20 homers already. So, um, you know, the way it's structured is kind of, it, it, you know, people have gotten too smart for that. Um, and I think there needs to be a change in order to, you know, even it out so the players get paid more when they're actually in their prime and then it can taper down towards the end of their career. Yeah, and for, for the competitive spirit of the game, too, it just seems like it would be healthy, you know. Ideally, you want, and you understand if there's a team or two that's, kind of gone through a cycle of being competitive and needs to revamp and rebuild. But, um, you know, it would be nice to see more teams seeking the best talent. And it it seems like it would be easier to do if that adjustment that you just said would be implemented. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard because I, I totally get the philosophy, like kind of the Astros philosophy of stink for a bunch of years, get some good draft picks save up a bunch of money. And then when you're good, you go for it. But this year in free agency, there was a lot of 
what I call like no doubt major league players that were taking minor league deals. Um, and like, it shouldn't be like that. You shouldn't be a 31 year old guy who has had a lot of success in the major leagues and you have to sign a minor league deal. Like Neil Walker shouldn't have, shouldn't have had to sign a minor league deal going into camp. He's a major leaguer. He just, he is. Um, you know, there's others like that, that had to go in signing minor league deals that, you know, maybe five, seven years ago, uh, more teams would have said, Oh, he's a veteran. We know what we can expect from him. Like he's a major leaguer. Like we, we want him. Um, but those teams don't necessarily want to win right now. Um, one thing that the Mets have done, which is interesting and commendable, is they're trying. They're trying to win. Um, and so for fans, you know, I'm a fan now. Mets are my favorite team um, in this day and age. Um, so, like, for fans, you know, whether they want to, you know, we want to complain that, like, maybe the product's not the best, they're trying. They're spending, you know, Maybe not as much money as everyone thinks they should, but they're unlike other organizations, they're going for it still. Um, and, you know, at least half the teams aren't. That's just a fact. So um, something definitely needs to change in order to, uh, you know, kind of dissuade teams from, from acting like that. Uh, you mentioned that now you are, you know, you consider yourself a Mets fan. So, and I know that you've done some stuff with SNY in the past. So, you know, mm -hmm. you're somebody who's obviously following the current team. What do you think of yeah. the current team? What What do you think that this team's going to do for the rest of the year? What do they have to do to win? And is there a player or players that have really caught your eye at this season so far? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll go with your your last question first. I mean, Alonzo's obviously caught my eye. I, I didn't. I obviously like I follow like what's going on, you know, in the minor leagues a little bit, not not so much. And I knew he was a guy that people were hot, like had high hopes for. But what he's done is incredible. Um, he's an exciting player. Um, and what what excites me the most about him is when he goes up to bat, he's trying to change the game every single time he hits. He's trying to do something to change the game. Not every player is trying to do that. Um, you know, he is trying to alter the game in a positive way for the Mets every single time he goes up to bat. Um, I'm a big Jeff McNeil fan. I actually was like, not a huge, not supporter, but like, I didn't think he was, you know, he had a nice little run last year. Um, there's hundreds of guys, including myself that had like a nice four months of a, you know, of a season when the team was losing. Um, but what he has done so far this year has been phenomenal. I mean, he is, he looks like a kind of player. Um, you know, kind of what I was describing earlier with like Daniel Murphy, a guy that, you know, you put him up against the best pitchers in the game and he's going to fight and have a good at bat and put the barrel on the ball and make things happen. Um, so those two guys uh, have been exciting. Um, I'm also a big J.D. Davis supporter. Um, I actually, we have the same agent. Um, and my last year before I retired, uh, I used to go, my agent used to host this like camp in LA for, um, young minor leaguers that, you know, his top minor leaguers. And, uh, I, I used to go every year cause it was right by my house, um, to kind of work out with them. And, uh, when I saw him hit throw, whatever, that was like, I'll, I'll never forget this. That was like a cue to me, like, dude, your time is coming, coming up, <laughs> you know? Um, because like, you know, he was young and, talented and he could do stuff that I could no longer do. Um, and so I think, you know, from what they did in the off season and, and we can go into this too, I think Brody did some, some good and, and bad things. Um, that one, him in particular, I thought was from day one before he even played a game. I was like, that was smart. You know, I, I kind of tracked him over the years because like I met him and, you know, whatever. Um, and I was like, this guy has a chance to be really good. He had some good minor league numbers, nowhere to play in Houston. And he's, he's done well. Um, but for me, the key to the season rests with a couple people. Um, I think, obviously, the pitching staff uh, is crucial. Um, by that, I mean, you know, DeGrom, Wheeler, Noah, and Matt are, you know, are everything to the team. Um, it's obviously been not up to expected so far, um, although Matt has been pretty good. Um, but you know, I think if they can get that, Jake, I don't worry about the other guys. Um, I'm a big Wheeler supporter too. Um, I think Wheeler last year was amazing. And I think he'll be fine. Um, and Noah too. I, I just think those guys, if they can pitch the way that they're capable of, um, the team has a good chance. Um, but for me, like it all rests with Cano and, and Wilson Ramos. Um, those were the big sign or the big 
acquisitions. Um, I, I wasn't a huge fan of the Cano deal only because what they had to give up for an aging Robinson Cano, obviously NDS too, but I thought it was crazy. Um, but, you know, those guys were supposed to be the veterans in the middle of the lineup that stabilized everything around Alonzo and McNeil and, uh, you know, Rosario, who else am I forgetting? Conforto, Nimmo, all these guys, like they need, you know, you need a veteran presence if you want to really take the team to the next level. And those were the guys. And Wilson Ramos has been pretty good lately. Um, but Cano, like he, you know, he's the key. If he can be even what he was last year, I think that changes the whole dynamic of the lineup um, to where it's not so reliant on young guys. You uh, you mentioned when talking about J.D. Davis that when you saw him, you started to realize maybe your time was up. And I want to talk about the end of your career for a bit because I think for a lot of us that work a more standard 9-to-5, when we think about retirement, we think about job change all the time. We think about retirement, though. It sounds something very, very far away. But when did you start to think that maybe your career was was coming to an end? And you know, for our listeners who don't know, what was the catalyst that led you to retire? So um, I got sent out from the Mets after 2014. Um, I broke with the team, didn't play much. Um, and it's interesting. I actually, uh, on SNY, discussed this the other day, when I was in town the other day because Keon Broxton uh, made a comment that, uh, you know, he, what are they expecting to do? He doesn't play, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I kind of had that mindset too and then had a realization that like, well, there's a thousand guys in the minor leagues that would gladly take my place and do whatever they want. So I kind of just didn't play well in 2014, you know, lack of playing time might've been a part of it, whatever. Um, and I got designated um, and I went to Cincinnati with a really good opportunity to make the team. Um, and I got hurt uh, right away um, with a concussion. And I just never was really the same. That year was a nightmare bouncing in and out of doctors and, uh, playing in AAA uh, and playing pretty bad for my standards. I mean, my career numbers in the minor leagues are really good. So, you know, being like a 270 hitter with a couple of homers is not like up to what I, my standards. Um, so then I went and played winter ball that off season. This is 2000, after 2015. I went to Dominican and I had played in Venezuela um, in 2010 when I was young. Um, and I was one of the best players on the team. And in Dominican, like I was one of the worst players on the team. So that was kind of like a, okay, maybe I'm just rusty, but it kind of like led me think like, all right, um, this might be close to the end. Um, I signed with San Diego. No one would sign me, which is, I thought was crazy because I was two years removed from hitting 290 in the major league. Um, and uh, I kind of begged San Diego to sign me. They signed me. I went to spring training. I did okay. Um, I went to AAA with them for like a minute, and after like a month, I was like, I looked around, and I was like, I'm not only the oldest guy on the team, but I'm the worst player on the team. Um, and what, what that was from, I don't know. Um, it just happened like fairly quick, it seemed like, but it was like a year or so in the making. Um, and so you kind of have to be realistic. I was 30 at the time with yourself. It's like, all right, they weren't going to let me go. Like they were great to me. Um, and I could stay and maybe try to figure something out, but I was so far away from getting back to the major leagues and I didn't want to be a, and there's nothing wrong with this, but I didn't want to be a guy that played in AAA. So he was 35 just so he could continue to play baseball. I was only playing to be a major leaguer. Um, so I, I, it was not easy, but one day I was like, uh, I could actually, I'll just tell you the whole thing. So we were in, it was, I was in El Paso in AAA and I wasn't playing that much. And, um, we were flying to Fresno to play the AAA team there, whoever it was. And, uh, our flight got delayed like hours. We got to the ballpark at like five 30. Our bags weren't there. Our bag showed up at six 45 for a seven o'clock game. Of course I'm in the lineup because, you know, on those miserable days, you know, you have your worst players on the team playing in triple A. That's just the way it works. Um, and I remember I had three horrible at bats and I'm in the on deck circle for my fourth. I'm like, you know what? Like this might be my last at bat. Um, and then I ended up hitting a double off the wall. I'm standing on second base and I'm like, well, maybe I'm back, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> maybe I'm good again. Um, and so I ended up getting a fifth at bat 
and having another horrendous at bat. And I'm like, okay, that's it. And so I called my wife um, and I called my agent, my dad, and I was like, I'm done. And so I came in the next day and um, our manager was actually Rod Barajas, who I had played with in New York in 2011. Um, and I said, Rod, I'm, you saw me play when I was good, I think. And he's like, yeah, you do, um, relative to what I was. And uh, so we kind of just talked it out. I called, um, we called the uh, assistant GM of the Padres together. And I was like, ah, this is it for me. And we parted ways like on great terms. They were amazing to me. They actually offered me a job. Like it was, they were great to me. Um, but I just, when you know, when you're realistic with yourself and you know, um, you know. And for me, I, I, I just knew. Yeah, I think, you know, I think a, a lot of guys who have played uh, and never made it anywhere near the majors, you know, <clears throat> 99% of guys playing baseball in junior high and high school, and maybe even if they play in college, you know, have that kind of realization, uh, you know, a lot earlier. But it's, you know, eventually with every everybody, you know, from never making it anywhere near professional baseball to the Hall of Fame at some point, you know, that that yeah. that moment happens. Um, the like that path that you took to get there, did that make you, the transition into baseball, post baseball, you know, everyday life easier? And you mentioned the, the Padres, you know, putting a job offer out there, you know, since you've retired and you know now we're we're coming up on being about three years out from that um mm -hmm. have you had an interest in getting back into the game in some capacity um or is it kind of you like where you are uh you know getting to watch it as a fan and and leaving it at, at that yeah i mean it's interesting because like i have a really good gig right now i really like what i do i'm in the real estate business um and i but i love baseball I love talking about baseball. I love, you know, watching baseball, um, which is kind of why I do SNY um, every once in a while, just because it gives me that, like, it, like that itch when I like to just talk about baseball, um, you know, for that week I'm on the show, it, it allows me to, you know, kind of divulge everything I wanted to say for the last year. Um, but, you know, the hard part about baseball, um, and obviously I lived it, is the travel is crazy. You can't really have, a I don't want to call it normal life but you can't have a life where you're with your kids all the time where you're with your wife with your family etc um and to me that was kind of it's more important than you know fulfilling a dream of like working in baseball um you know I I always will want to be involved in some way um but I, I just you know all the jobs that I was given opportunities for in baseball was a job where, you know, I'd be moving around all the time, traveling all the time. Um, and it's just a, it's not an easy life. Um, and I think it's, you know, having lived it through the minor leagues and the major leagues, et cetera, I think it's something that I don't necessarily want to live again um, because you just miss so much um, that's, you know, there's more to life, even though I love the game so much. There's, I wanted to see, first, I wanted to see what else I could do in life, um, you know, job-wise. But also, um, I didn't want to, you know, miss watching my kids grow up. Um, and so, for me, it was not an easy decision, but I never really thought twice about wanting to stay in the game um, in that capacity. Um. Well, you know, if you want to talk about baseball, we're here all the time. So, you know, feel free to reach out. We'll, we'll be happy to talk about baseball with you whenever you like, Josh. Don't worry about that. Um, but I, I, I do want to talk about our site for a second. So before I, I wrote or podcasted for Amazing Avenue, I was a reader and a listener to the podcast. And our old podcast host, I have to shout him out. His name is Jeffrey Paternostro, and he was a huge fan of yours. And he had started a hashtag on Twitter or whenever you would get a hit, he would write hail, like hail Satan, but hail Satan. Do you remember that? Okay, uh -huh. I was going to ask you if you were aware of that was happening, because that was that was a big mm -hmm. Amazing Avenue thing back in the day. 
somebody um, cued me into him pretty early on. Uh, he was like a big supporter of mine, like in the minor leagues, um, I think. Uh, and um, someone cued me into him. And then um, I remember I got on Twitter, like, I don't know, like maybe a year before I got to the major leagues. Um, and then things would just pop up around me. And I was like, damn, people actually know who I am. Like, this is crazy. Um, but I, I remember him for sure. And I'll always have love for him. I don't know if we've ever, I don't think we've ever met, but, or even spoken, but um, I do remember. Uh, and the craziest thing was um, in 2013 or one year where I was up there. Um, I remember like a couple different times, like I would see like someone hold a sign in the stand um, that would say that. And I was like, damn, someone took the time. <laughs> to write that and hold a sign up in support of me. I was like, that was unreal. Um, so um, shout out to him for sure. Uh, because, you know, people think that, I don't know if fans think that like players don't see that or don't appreciate it or don't recognize it, but we do. Um, and I definitely did. Uh, because like, you know, you never know how long it's going to last. Um, and that support you know, while it lasts, it was incredible. Um, it's, there's no better feeling. Like, that, it's all part of playing in New York is that, like, you know, for me, um, when things are going great, like, you could walk down the street and, like, I'm a basic-looking guy. Like, it, you know, and people would say, like, hey, great hit yesterday. I'm like, dude, hell yeah. You know, like, <laughs> this is awesome. Um, you know, I, I – my favorite, like, the best day of my career, essentially, was um, – I can't remember what year, but uh, I got a walk-off hit off Sergio Romo. Um, and I lived in this apartment building on the Upper East Side. Uh, and nobody ever in my apartment building, like, acknowledged my existence. Um, like, that I was anyone different than, uh, you know, every other tenant that lived there. Um, but I remember I got a walk-off hit, and I walked, like, as I was walking home. David used to drive me home every day. So I would walk from his apartment, which is, like, two blocks to mine. Um, and like everyone on the way was like shouting me out and my doorman, like hugged me and was like, this is why New York's the best city ever because like, they know, you don't think they know, but they know. Um, and the game was meaningless. We were terrible then. Um, but they cared, uh, and it was a good feeling and it was, it was something that I'll never forget. All right. The last question I'm going to ask is a two-parter and, and these are kind of meaningless, silly questions, but. Uh, favorite spot to eat in New York, and what are you listening to music-wise right now? Um, okay. Um, so in New York, I mean, I was pretty basic, but I actually was just there last week doing SMY, um, and I ate at this Italian restaurant called Quality Italian. That was incredible. Um, so shout out to them. Um, we actually, uh, when Ike was on the team, um, he and I would hang out quite a bit, um, and he had these can't remember the names of the restaurants, but these like Italian, I'm, I like Italian food, if you can't tell. Um, he had these two Italian restaurants in Brooklyn that were like old school Italian, you know, type of spots that we used to go to all the time um, that they would, they would like, you know, give us gobs of food for free. And like, it was just a great experience. So um, there was definitely no shortage of good food in, uh, in New York when we went mostly Italian. Um, but I, you know, I was a creature of habit. Like I would go every day when I lived there, walk to Starbucks, eat breakfast at Starbucks, sit there for like an hour, just people watch, um, and eat most of my meals at the ballpark. Um, but now that I'm not a player and when I go there, um, I definitely explore more of the, uh, finer foods of New York, um, than I did when I was a player. Um, and then, uh, music wise, um what do i listen to now um to be honest like i listen in the car like some more podcasts whether it be like sports podcasts or real estate related podcasts for work um or i'll listen to uh sports radio just to get my fix before like you know my my current job like nobody in the office really is a sports guy so like i can't sit by the you know water cooler per se and be like hey you watched the Mets game last night like people would look at me like i'm an idiot um, so I listen to like a lot of sports stuff. So music wise, I mean, I'm pretty basic. I, I, you know, growing up playing baseball, like you kind of get, even though I'm like a, a city guy, like you, you get to be fond of country, country music. Um, 
but I was always like more of a hip hop guy. All right. Well, if folks want to find out more about you, where are you online? Where can they interact with you? Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm not that active, but you know, every once in a while when I see something I want to say, um, I will, uh, I like to respond to people, um, but I'm not super active on just like tweeting random stuff. Um, but my Twitter name is Josh at Josh Satin. So pretty basic. Um, and, uh, that's really it. Um, try to just, you know, I, uh, I follow along with baseball really. Um, but mostly the Mets. I mean, like I, uh, I, I said this to one of the guys at SMY the other day. I have a, in my office a couple um, computer screens up there um, that I asked to get an extra one so like I could do more work. But really, I just put the game on every day at four <laughs> Pacific time and watch the game. So it's actually like a huge bummer when they're on the West Coast because um, I, the game starts when I'm at home and I, my wife doesn't want to watch the game at home. Um, so like there's nothing better than a matinee new york mets game that's one o'clock eastern so i get to the office at 8 30 and the game starts at 10 and i just throw it on my other screen and watch the game so you know always happy to uh interact about the team um and baseball in general because you know this is what i it, it's crazy to say but like until i was 30 you know from age three to 30 like baseball was everything to me still is but you know i have other things going on now but it, it's really all i all I ever thought about. Um, and all of a sudden it kind of like turns off. Like I like to snap at your fingers. Um, but you can never really turn it off. Well, folks, that does it for another installment of amazing Avenue in conversation. Please go to amazingavenue.com where you can hear and see and read lots more about the Mets from the amazing Avenue crew. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at amazing Avenue. Get this show from Apple podcasts. Please rate review and subscribe. Our podcasts are doing so great. I'm so proud of everybody. It's been so much fun to put together this new podcast network. So I hope you guys are enjoying it. And you can find Chris on Twitter at Chris McShane. I am at Brian It's a Nap. And we are out of time. Have a good week. And as always, let's go Mets. Mets.